All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 179 of Crow 777 Radio. Jason Lingren is with me as always, and Mr. Mark Devlin is coming across the water to join us to talk about music, specifically, mostly about punk rock. So maybe it would be apt to say here, never mind, which in fact is a conjunction and uh, used in both seminal album titles of part of what we'll be breaking down here. If you take a careful look at what's going to get laid down in this episode, you'll have a whole new view. And I know Mr. Devlin likes to say, you got to kill your heroes, man. And I don't think truer words were ever spoken, but you'll have to be the judge of that when you assess what we are offering here. Anyhow, let's jump in with the gentleman and uh, take on episode 179, Punk Rock. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 179. Jason Lingren is with me, as always, and Mr. Mark Devlin is joining us from across the pond. And we're going to take a run at punk rock, another of the orchestrated, architected movements of our world, of which I played a major, major role. Most people out there don't know, but in the 70s, I was actually in a punk rock band. And of course, I had to wear my safety pins because I, too, was programmed at that point. Anyhow, welcome, Mr. Jason Lindgren. Um, welcome back. Your dreams are your ticket out. <laughs> Good morning, Crow. So how goes it? What do we got for the intro here? Uh, we got a lot to cover with Mr. Devlin, and I know he's bringing a lot to the table. And uh, I lived right through this period, so it should be an interesting episode. Yes, we do have a lot to go through. So let's talk about October 20th. We're having Shoot the Moon NYC. This is our little mini conference and film showing. John Brisson will be speaking. Mark Devlin will be speaking. Wayne McCroy will be speaking. We will be showing Shoot the Moon, and Crow and I will be present to do a Q&A afterward. October 20th in New York City, $30. Go to eventbrite.com. Hope to see you there. All right. Also, Crow 777 Radio on Facebook, which is run by Rose, has easy links to get there, as does, I think, my Twitter feed, which I don't really use to do anything but post to. Um, and, and don't you have one more thing about some problem with the shape of the world? November 15th, I will be giving a workshop speech at the Flat Earth International Conference 2019, Dallas, Texas. My little project will be on the social engineering of our worldview, space and space travel. The hell's the matter with you, man? Are you trying to tell me the world's not round? Is that what's going on here? Because, uh, well, we better set that aside and just handle punk rock for now. Anyhow, shall we get Mr. Devlin in here? The time has come. Mr. Mark Devlin, welcome. Um, I was going to say from London, and then I realized I'm not sure if it is London. Is it London? Well, it's Oxford, which is about 50 miles from London. So, Jason Crow, good to be with you. And you're speaking to a dude who's just got back from the Globe Lie Convention here in the UK last weekend. So it's interesting Jason mentions he's going to be at, be at that event. Uh, I guess we're all uh, on a similar page with this <laughs> For crying in the beer, let's just throw punk rock out the window. Let's go straight at this round thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, let's do it. Yeah. Anyhow, um, I know. But why don't Why don't we start on square one? Um, you were independent of each other as we both prepped up to deliver the uh, the base. You know what this is? This whole punk movement is basically the Beatles all over again, if you think about it, just in a lowering way. But you were thinking about words have meaning. I was thinking about words have meaning. So why don't you jump in with your words that have meaning? Sure. Well, when it comes to the naming of the punk movement, it becomes very interesting to look at the origins of that word. When you look at the official definitions, they include a young man used as a homosexual partner, especially in prison, an aggressive and violent young man an inexperienced young person, a cowardly or weak young man, an inferior, rotten, worthless person or thing, a petty criminal or hoodlum. 
which are not exactly flattering terms for <laughs> a whole tribe of music fans to identify themselves with. A lot of people will be familiar with the word punk from the Dirty Harry movie, where Clint Eastwood derides the uh, serial killer as a punk. And apparently uh, the origins of uh, this word being used or being associated with this music movement came from an episode of Kojak, where the Telly Savalas character derides uh, this criminal as a lousy punk. So uh, there's this guy, Roderick McNeil who was a journalist nicknamed Legs McNeil. And he was one of the founders of the fanzine called Punk, first published in New York in 1975. And he's credited or considered to have uh, applied this name to that movement. And the term punk rock had already been coined by the writers on a magazine called Cream before that. But you've got this guy, McNeil, who is generally, uh, you know, considered to have applied it uh, popularly. Words yeah. have meaning, and, and I think you underscore it's kind of ironic, uh, a rotten person. Would that be a Johnny Rotten person? We all know the Sex Pistols kicked off this movement, at least for me in the United States. Uh, we got a hold of a forty-five of God Save the Queen before it was released in this country because one of the members of my band had a girlfriend that run a record store. But I can't resist. If Kojak's going to poke us all in the eye with the social engineering, I'm going to have to return the favor. And when I was in college, I remember walking into the bathroom. People used to write funny things on the wall. So here's my poke at Telly Savalas. I went in to use the urinal one day and it said on the wall, don't look now, but you got Telly Savalas by the neck. So take that, Mr. Telly Savalas. Um, but anyhow, to get back to the point that words have meaning, um, two of the seminal albums that are going to end up relating in our discourse about the punk rock movement are, um, one is 1977's seminal album, voted one of the best albums of all time, and engineered from top to bottom, from my point of view, is Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols 1977. And of course... Mr. Dublin will probably have something to add because that was done on Sir Richard Branson's Virgin label, the other being 1991's Nevermind, spelled slightly different. So let's take a look at that word that shows up in these two seminal albums that are both, in my view, engaged in the lowering uh, the quality of music uh, that the world is going to be exposed to. Nevermind is, of course, a conjunction junction, so here's its function. Uh, the definition of Nevermind is used especially in negative contexts to add one term to another using something less likely, such as much less or let alone. And again, just to make it perfectly clear, in the first version, the Sex Pistols put out, never mind the bollocks. Most people know what bollocks is slang for. When we get up to 91, they show you the bollocks of the baby in the pool, don't they? And they string the words never and mind together. Again, that word, a conjunction. Anything to add there, Mark? Uh, not really to the word aspect of it. My own memory of the punk scene goes back to uh, 1977. I was never really into punk myself. I've always been more into black music, you know, hip-hop and soul and R&B and this sort of stuff. But I did have a school friend who lived just a few doors up from me, and uh, he was seven as well. And he went out and bought the Sex Pistols record Friggin' in the Riggin' off of the great rock and roll Swindle album. I can't remember what that was the B-side to. It was one of the Sex Pistols singles. But he had to keep this a secret from his dad because his dad wouldn't have been too impressed that he had a copy of this record. His mum knew about it, and it was their secret that they kept from his dad. Hardly fitting material for a seven-year-old to be into, but uh, that's my personal memories of that whole 1977 scene. And I can remember the furore that accompanied the release of God Save the Queen at the time of the Queen of England's Silver Jubilee. 
in that year. Uh, <laughs> of course. All manufactured hype, of course. And when we get into <laughs> it, as I'm sure we will, uh, so much of this occurred at the hands of Malcolm McLaren, who becomes a very interesting character to study. But you mentioned Richard Branson there, who is, of course, part of the establishment furniture in Britain. He's an MBE. He's a sir. Uh, you know, he's very much connected to the control system when it comes to entertainment and big business. And then when you throw the likes of Malcolm McLaren into the mix, and also Johnny Rotten, we can get into some aspects of his background, which become very interesting to study, then you get a very alternative take on where this scene emerged from and what the whole idea behind it may have been from a social engineering perspective. Well, if you just take a common sense look um, and just look at what we're being presented with, a song called God Save the Queen kicks this off, right? Even in the United States, we're getting a hold of it before it's even released on 45. And um, as you mentioned, the Queen's Jubilee is going on. Uh, what was it that Mr. Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, informed us? Uh, God Save the Queen, she ain't no human being. But Jason, you want to get in on this? I know we've discussed this before, and one of the things that always jumped out at me with the recordings of all this, since I always look at things from that point of view, is that for being loud and raucous noise... That's what punk is supposed to be. The recordings always seem to sound pretty good. Right. There's double-tracked guitars and all that, like you would do normally for the, your rhythm parts and all that. So whatever they were putting out into the live aspects of all of this, they certainly took their time to get it right for the recordings. And we're talking about a time when it wasn't that easy to just copy and paste and punch in and all that. You could do it on tape, but you had to have your timing down right. Well, let, let, let's take a look at that idea. We've been told over and over how record companies that are going to sign a band actually act. Let's take Tom Petty. We're told Tom Petty came out with all his friends and the record label set up, send all your, your long lifetime friends home. We're giving you a new band, right? That's how it really works because they're worried about the bottom line. What we're being told about the Sex Pistols is that none of them knew how to play their instruments except possibly the guitarist. And then later it became the guitarist played the bass parts and everything. But they're even trying to say that never did Mr. Sid Vicious, uh, as Freddie Mercury called him, Mr. Ferocious, uh, ever learn to play his bass. And yet on the song's bodies from Nevermind the Bollocks, we have what we are told is an underlying base from Mr. Sid Vicious. So, Mark, let's address that. Um, so many people are going at the Beatles these days and realizing it just isn't what it appeared to be at the time, and they're starting to put together there's a reason why they didn't tour and all that music was studio, and no one could even play it live until there were you know, very powerful synthesizers that could play multiple parts. And we're really looking at the same version of a different thing here, aren't we? Well, yeah, with the research that I did for the two volumes of my book, and I continue to do because there's going to be a third volume before long, there has to be because this shit never ends, uh, it becomes clear that uh, you can take any genre within popular music and you can find all these nefarious connections and uh, anomalies and discrepancies behind uh, many of the key players. And it's not as if I set out to do this. It's not as if I say, okay, I've done hip hop and electronic dance music. Now let me lay into punk and uh, let me destroy this particular genre. It's just when you start the research with an open mind, these things just jump out at you like a mugger in a dark alley and you can't avoid the information. And so it is with punk and also new wave, you know, post-punk. So uh, the punk 
idealism was kind of carried forward into various different genres, not least new wave. And then in the UK, you had the two-tone movement and all these different uh, scenes that came afterwards. But uh, you do find connections going into institutions like uh, the Frankfurt School and the Tavistock Institute. You find connections going into military intelligence backgrounds. Here we go again. It's like Dave McGowan's Laurel Canyon work just transferred from LA to New York and London in terms of what you find when you look at the backgrounds and uh, many other nefarious things. You've got this avant-garde intellectual movement known as situationism, situationist international, which is weaved into the whole punk story as well. And this is a movement that has connections into Dadaism and surrealism. And you find that the likes of Malcolm McLaren and Bernie Rhodes, the managers of the Sex Pistols and The Clash, were situationists, as was Tony Wilson, who was behind the Hacienda and these groups like Joy Division and New Order and the Happy Mondays coming out of Manchester. So that's an interesting thing to find. And then when you dig further into it, you find that the punk movement in New York was very heavily inspired by the beat poet movement, which had come before it in the 50s and 60s, which in turn is said to have inspired the hippie counterculture scene of the 60s. But a lot of the early punk rockers would revere the likes of Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs out of the uh, beat poet movement, who are fairly strange heroes to put on a pedestal, really, when you get into it, given that Ginsberg was a suspected CIA agent, an alleged pedophile and a member of NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. So he campaigned for the (laughs) age of consent to be lowered for grown men to be able to have sex with young boys. And then William Burroughs was a heroin and morphine addict who shot his wife dead in a stunt gone wrong, but uh, managed to avoid any jail time for it. So an interesting set of heroes there. And as you said, the punk rock scene, see, this is an interesting thing because it emerged in... New York City, coming out of the Greenwich Village area of Manhattan primarily. And then very shortly after that, you had this scene coming out of London, which was centered around Chelsea and particularly the King's Road, where Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood had their sex boutique. And that's where the members of the Sex Pistols are said to have congregated and uh, formed the group at the hands of Bernie Rhodes, incidentally. And in both these cities, New York and London, you've got areas called Chelsea, And there are aspects of the punk scene that came out of Chelsea in both New York and London. I would like to get into this uh, venue, the Chelsea Hotel, at some point in New York, because that's very interesting to study. But then, you know, the London punk scene is centered around Chelsea. You've got Malcolm McLaren, who crops up on both scenes. He was the manager for a time of the New York Dolls. And then he emerges as the driving force behind the Sex Pistols. And he's behind all the propaganda and hype of the whole punk movement. So it's almost as if if these two scenes were timed to occur more or less simultaneously and affect people on both sides of the Atlantic. I don't think there's any questioning that. And as a matter of fact, Johnny Thunders, who we're told was killed in, uh, well, I was in the Marine Corps. I heard that Johnny Thunders had died over a bag of heroin in New Orleans or something like this. He was the guitarist that got me playing guitar when I was in the summer of sixth grade or something like that. But let's just take a moment. Um, you know, what we're laying down here really underscores the idea that such that cliche, all the world's a stage. Well, I think most people understand that all the world is a stage, but many people are not aware that we've pretty much had the stage man- the same stage manager all along. But as we get into these ideas, and I'm sure we'll have to touch on CBGB, uh, we mentioned that earlier, apparently direct ties to the Hells Angels, um, who in the same period of time are directly tied to the meth epidemic, which is going to happen in my hometown of San Diego. That's where that will start. But 
one of the overarching causes for punk, I think, was to lower music. We've come all the way to rap now. And for my part, I don't think a lot of rap even qualifies as music because music requires harmony and melody, among other things. For a long time, what we saw was the sampling of older music. But let's set that aside. And uh, as we get into the ideas you're laying down, think about this. Right before punk hit the scene, we had some pretty skilled musical bands, bands like Rush or ELP or any number of bands that I could lay down. They were so skilled that when you went out to hear cover bands play, most of these bands' music was never covered because you had to be an effective musician to even start to tackle uh, the complexity of that music. And as a matter of fact, I think with bands like ELP or Rush or some of the others I could name, classical music has a direct influence, even though it's rock and roll, you can see the direct influence. And in other words, whatever you want to think of the genre, the musicality and the higher mindedness of the music is a bit more. What punk does is it comes in and says to hell with all those 20 minute guitar leads, the long hair and all that pomp and circumstance, you need to know three bar chords and have a fuzz box. And I think that's where it starts. And by the time we get up to the 90s, it's done again in grunge. And all the way through that period of time, rap is emerging, which has become uh, some aggressive version of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. A lot of rap, in my view, is not music. Uh, it just doesn't fit the definition of music. But let's get back to the point where you're getting to the roots of where this all started. And let's include CBGB while we're at it. You know, I'm curious, is there a drug scene that is considered directly related into the punk movement? See, that, that, would that Paris, varied right? from, yeah, they're, they're, well, look at Sid Vicious. He was the poster boy for heroin. You know, they right. even do the whole staging of him killing his girlfriend whacked out on heroin. Uh, we still can't figure out why he was in the band because he couldn't play his instrument, we are told. Um, but nonetheless, all that stage craft, hint, 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 uh, went on. But you see, one thing about the punk movement is a lot of it was associated with we don't do drugs. That's what the rockers did. Um, and then from place to place, band to band, that started to change and morph. And there was even a version of punk called, if I remember correctly, Straight Edge. Do you remember that, Mark? Straight Edge was the idea that they were punk, but they didn't have sex and they didn't do drugs or something like that. Not so familiar with that one, no. And they put X's on their hands. Yeah, but um, anyhow, back, back to the point. Mark was getting to the roots of things, and while we're covering the roots on your side of the pond, I don't think we can ignore CBGB. Sure. Well, you probably know more about CBGB than me. Let me just throw something in there about Sid Vicious, though. Uh, you're speculating on how it was he came to be in the band when he could barely play his instrument, and he appeared to be just a hopeless junkie who died at the age of 21. Well, it turns out that Sid Vicious's parents, his real name, by the way, was Simon John Ritchie. His parents met when they were both in the Royal Air Force. And Sid Vicious's father, for a time, worked as a guard at Buckingham Palace. Now, these are pretty unlikely family backgrounds for a punk rocker. I'm sure you would agree. And this is something I've found time and time again when I've looked into this genre and pretty much every other genre that I've researched in music as well. Where you would expect members of bands that are playing in these gritty, uh, raw, rundown, spit and sawdust type clubs and doing heavy drugs and alcohol and getting groupies and being out on the road on tour, living the rock and roll lifestyle. I don't know about you, but I would expect to find their parents having been, or the fathers, having been things like laborers, construction workers, lorry drivers, miners, dockers, these kind of working class jobs. But we don't find that. When we look into what the fathers did, we find that they were 
diplomats, uh, politicians, university professors, lecturers coming out of uh, big business, CEOs of corporations, of NGOs, this sort of thing. Very unlikely backgrounds. So uh, there's Sid Vicious and where he came from, named after a pet hamster, by the way. And of course, we've got this whole mess with Nancy Spungen culminating at the Chelsea Hotel you know, which has long passed into legend. And that was the final nail in the coffin of the Sex Pistols legacy. But uh, yeah, it's all a total mess. And we've got John Lydon, Johnny Rotten and Malcolm McLaren to throw into the mix with this particular story as well. So, I mean, when we begin to look at the work that McGowan did and where you picked up after McGowan left, you know, McGowan did so many compelling things. The one thing that disappointed me, the only thing that really disappointed me in McGowan's work was the the non-recognition of the death dates and the, and the idea that, that, that this is just more set pieces moving. But as you described, Mr. Mm-hmm. Vicious, what do we know about record labels? You know, this is about money, isn't it? Uh, record labels are famous for fleecing musicians through time. This is all about money. So I would just ask again, when we find someone uh, by admission of history that can't play their instrument yet is a member of a seminal band, they begin to appear to be a bit of a set piece, don't they? Well, that's right. That's right. That's what uh, the hype of the Sex Pistols was all about. And that group emerged out of the pub rock scene in London which was supposedly a backlash against all these groups that you mentioned coming out of the prog rock scene. So ELP and Yes and Genesis and Jethro Tull, these sort of groups. Supposedly, the young people in London at the time were just heartily sick of these pretentious, self-absorbed musicians with their long instrumental solos on stage and their over-the-top set pieces and all of this. And the punk spirit was supposed to be this rebellious backlash against all of that. So the Sex Pistols supposedly emerged out of the pub rock scene in London before Johnny Rotten was brought in to join the other musicians at the hands of McLaren. And then they get this uh, makeover and suddenly the safety pins and the spiky dyed hair and the ripped tartan costumes start to appear. And you've got the whole look of the punk scene there. You know, that's an interesting idea, too, um, because I do remember that was exactly the case. Um, We're tired of 20-minute guitar solos by guys who know how to play their instruments, but, you know, people like Rick Wakeman could have actually been engineering that. I mean, I think at one point, Rick Wakeman was uh, wearing a cape there and playing two-hour sets on his keyboards. But here's the thing about those so-called prog rock, the really skilled musicians that very few people could cover their music because they were so skilled at their musical instruments, was that either... London had the ability to have every other family produce a musical prodigy, or these people were taught very young classical music skills on their instruments. I mean, what would you say? Well, I can't really argue with that. Yeah. I mean, it's on the face of it, right? You get someone like Rick Wakeman or any of these guys, or, or how about, you know, that? well, I don't want to get off track. I was going to mention something about Breakfast in America, but that's kind of been beat to the, to the dust recently. So, Jason, do you want to lead us in a direction? Well, I'm kind of curious if we take a step back from the Sex Pistols. Now, of course, you had people in the 50s and definitely the 60s trying to get more of a distorted sound, get their amps to go as loud as possible, really to to make things dirtier. So by the time you get to the uh, mid and late 60s, you have legitimate fuzz boxes and not actual overdrive or distortion pedals available yet, but definitely cranked amps, fuzzed out speakers. Sometimes they were damaging the speakers on purpose to get them to fuzz out. This was a sound, obviously, the, the youth were going for, and then you have legitimate electronics available to purchase to make these sounds. And, of course, you hear by the late 60s, legitimate 
distorted guitars coming in with all this layering and all that. So I'm curious, once you get into the 1970s, who is it that really started pushing this noisiness, this new sound away from, as we've been discussing here, the beautiful long solos and all that, like that kind of sound into this raucous over the top noise that's three chords. Yeah, three <laughs> chords and <laughs> all that kind of thing. Well, uh, Crow may know more about this, but uh, are we looking at groups like Iggy Pop and the Stooges and the yes. Velvet Underground and the New yes. York Dolls and the Patti Smith Group and all these kind of names? Yeah, I, I, I think you're hitting it right on the head. And so what we see is, you know, there was a time when even bands like Alice Cooper couldn't get the time of day. But look what we know now. That guy ends up hanging out with Salvador Dali. And in the middle of the 70s, there's a the year that they stated that Alice Cooper band made $17 million. And he was going out in a pink tutu. So even the Alice Coopers and the Iggy Pops, and by the way, in my punk band, we were playing the earliest Iggy Pop music. I want to be your dog. Give me danger, little stranger, all these things. Um, and But what very few people know is that David Bowie was directly related to everything early Iggy Pop, even apparently having a homosexual relationship with him, they're claiming, uh, when they all bailed out to Berlin to either get heavily into drugs or off them, I don't remember which. Point being, if you go back to listen to the early Iggy Pop, and I think you've nailed it on the head, this probably is source. Go back and listen to... God, I can't remember. Is it Raw Power? I think it's Raw Power is the name of the album. I could have that wrong. It's the one with uh, I Want to Be Your Dog, Gimme Danger, Little Stranger, whatever that, Search and Destroy. That was a song my band played. If you go back and listen to it now, it's shockingly, shockingly industrially fuzzy. And it is said that Mr. David Bowie did that. Now, when I go back and listen to that album, Though I'm a bit beyond that now, I always wonder what would it be like to hear a decent mix of this album. But I think Mark has hit it on the head. If you go back to that key album, you're looking at David Bowie helping Iggy Pop record a version of early punk um, with some musicality, but nonetheless, a version of early punk. He could be the godfather of punk rock, by the way, I guess. Um, him and David Johansson from The Dolls, but I think Iggy's earlier. Um, what you see is that Bowie came in and purposely destroyed the quality of the recording to give it that industrial, edgy, terrible sound. I also know that Iggy Pop was hanging around CBGBs a lot, so I wonder if he was kind of planted there to help guide that along. Well, I don't think there's there's any doubt because from from the histories that were handed, even on places like Alice Cooper, they were they were clown shows. No one wanted to see them. No one respected them. And all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, Alice Cooper's claiming he's making 17 million in 1970s money. That's a crap load of money in 1970s money. And not only that, there's another tell. And we see it in the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks album. Um, when you listen to that, it is clearly produced at a very high level. It is clearly the riffs and the guitar are written at a high level. One of the hardest things to do as a guitar player is to get a relatively simple riff that sounds strong, important, hooky, that, that grabs your attention. It's not an easy thing to do, and yet that is what the entirety of Nevermind the Bullocks, it, Bullocks is. So when we go back to these times, even, even by Alice Cooper, as I would cite, as one of the early influences where he wasn't directly in the punk rock movement, but he started that kind of lowering of the mind idea in some ways. And not only that, he's the pre-runner to Kiss putting all that makeup on. But my point here is if you go back and listen to Alice Cooper's albums, they are the most produced 
pristine, well put together engineer albums. And you know where he credits that? He credits that to the damn Bee Gees, believe it or not. And so that brings us all the way back around full circle to the other side of the pond where this is all being initiated. And of course, Mr. David Bowie is front and center with Iggy Pop kicking off the sound that will become punk rock. Right. You know, it seems to me that the controllers of the music industry have all these scenes and these genres up their sleeve, just waiting for the right moment to unleash them. So we mentioned that the punk scene was said to have been a backlash against the overindulgence of prog rock. So what if music consumers were deliberately fed several years of that sort of music so that they would be more than ready for this dynamic, rebellious art form that would come along called punk to stick two fingers up at it and give it a big kick up the arse and, you know, shake up the whole music scene? Very interesting to consider that. One of the champions of punk and new wave on the radio over here, one of the most influential radio DJs, was John Peel. John Peel, it turns out, his real name was John Ravencroft, and he was a public schoolboy from a very wealthy family. So he was not the middle class, re- sorry, the working class rebel that his image would uh, have you believe. He came out of the public school system. When you listen to very early tapes of him, he had a plum in his mouth, you know, this, this very BBC kind of British establishment accent. And he worked to wear that accent down and sound more working class on his broadcasts. So he was there at the very inception of Radio One when it launched in 1967, coming off the back of the pirate radio scene, the offshore pirates broadcasting from ships. And uh, he had this show called The Perfumed Garden, where he was championing hippie early counterculture acts, exactly the sort of groups that McGowan writes about in his Laurel Canyon book. And then some years later, Punk comes along and John Peel is poised in place with his Radio 1 late night show to become the champion of that scene. So he pushed many of those early acts. And uh, it just seems to me that these things are planned in advance. They're not organic. They don't just grow up out of nowhere. It's not just a bunch of musicians uh, at a grassroots level getting together and deciding to form these bands. And it all just happens to come together at that time. I've done enough research now and I've seen enough things to understand that any kind of movement or scene or trend like punk rock has been planned and uh, is rolled out according to blueprints. Mark, would it have been standard practice of anyone on the BBC to have to use RP or received pronunciation for anything that would be broadcast at that time? Well, up until the 1960s, it would have been. But towards the end of the 60s, everything changed. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned the whole offshore pirate radio, which they've now made movies about, and they're acting, but the picture they're painting is the establishment can't stand it, and something has to be done. Um, But let's draw another line. I mean, what you basically just did is showed that there's fingerprints on the murder weapon. That's a hard thing to ignore, but let's go back to the idea of distorted music. There are differing versions, and at this point, there are many versions about who first distorted. A lot of times, the kinks get the nod for having, and there's a band we could dwell on all day but supposedly someone came home drunk kicked their you know ruined the speaker and got a distorted sound and said hey i like that that's one of the versions but here's how we are told most official narratives tell us that uh distorted guitar distortion there's a word that has a meaning look it up so distortion is now going to be added to music well mr jimmy page is credited in one of the versions that you hear with making the first so-called fuzz box or distortion chamber and you know who he said made it for him his friend at the Admiralty. 
So there's really no separating these things ever. So when we get narratives like there's this ship pirate broadcasting and, and you know, the, the, the parliament and the admiralty can't stand it, it's a bit much to accept, isn't it? Well, that's right. You've got the usual family connections for days. You know, the father of Joe Strummer, his real name was John Graham Meller, turns out to have been a diplomat working in British politics. <laughs> and you've, you've got the usual family connections of the type that McGowan highlighted. It's no different in punk. They're all there, you know. Damn it all. Does this mean I can't be a rock star because I'm not related to Admiralty? Is that what this means? Well, my dad was a motor mechanic, so there's not much hope for me. <laughs> Well, there's a gentleman named Roger Mayer who was building a lot of the early fuzz boxes. He definitely worked in direct coordination with Jimi Hendrix. Have you ever come across that name, Mark? No, I've not heard of him. I'll have to look at that myself. I hadn't really thought of it for this episode, but he built a lot of the circuits and altered things in the late 60s and way into the 70s. You know, the whole distortion thing is quite a story because the narrative keeps changing, which was the first music that recorded it. For a long time, they were pushing it was the kinks with, uh, I think it's You Really Got Me. I uh, hope I have that right. And now it's become other bands. And now they're pointing to a band, I can't recall the name, but it's older than the kinks as the first distortion. But, you know, what we see is exactly what Mark is pointing out. There's like this infrastructure that's in place. Look at Marshall Amps. Do you know anything about Marshall Amps? Mark, the, you know, the, the guy, I think he was a drummer and he sees the need for louder guitars. So he, he creates the seminal, you know, must have implement that rock and roll is going to need called the Marshall stack. Do you know anything about that tale? No, but I have a feeling you're going to astound me by telling me there's some kind of military connection there. I don't know if he has a military connection, but yes, he kept building bigger and louder amps. And a lot of that got credited to Pete Townsend of the who, right? And uh, the, the Bluesbreaker amps were some of the early ones that Eric Clapton used on Cream. And they, of course, kept pushing to get louder and louder and louder. And there was a rivalry between Jack Bruce and Eric Clapton and Cream where they kept cranking their amps a bit louder, trying to outdo each other. And they get to the point, I think it was maybe around 69, where they're both using giant Marshall stacks. And it's just loud noise at that point. So you see a lot of this with the same musicians that have these connections. I mean, Eric Clapton's got connections going all the way back. I forget exactly who he's related to. By the way, as far as fuzz and all that, one of the biggest songs ever to really pioneer the fuzz sound in the mainstream was the song Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. That was originally supposed to be a horn section doing that da-da-da-da-da. And of course, they kept it as a fuzz box. And that really made young people want to go out and go, I want that sound too. Hmm. Well, what well, you just it, outlined there reminds me of This Is Spinal Tap. It sounds like that, that whole thing was, was pilloried say. in that movie. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think at one point, Marshall actually makes an amp that goes to 11 because of that movie. <laughs> um, but I, I would bet dollars to donut holes that anyone that wants to go look at the history of Marshall amplification units will find what we're saying. There's infrastructure in place. There's all these plans. I think it's exactly what Mark says, that there's a plan up the sleeve. And when the time is right, or maybe at a, a more specific time, um, they launch these ideas. And I don't think there's any separating the grunge movement from what happened in the punk era. And if for no other reason, you've been given the direct breadcrumb of the two seminal albums of maybe my lifetime. I don't think there's two bigger albums that are credited being in the top whatever albums than Nevermind the Bollocks and Nevermind by Nirvana. And they're clearly playing off each other. And as a matter of fact, here's another thing I noticed. 
a few years ago, I looked this up when Jason and I were going to go with the relationship, and I don't recall finding any wiki entry that admitted there was a connection between the two albums. Now, if you go to wiki, it is absolutely admitted that supposedly Kurt Cobain, who for my part is another set piece, absolutely intended to echo uh, the Sex Pistols album. And we have this connection there between grunge and punk and also the hippie counterculture loosely through Courtney Love, wife of Kurt Cobain, pioneer of the grunge movement, uh, credited with, if credited is the right word, putting a whole load of heroin into the music scene in Ireland and England when she came over here and uh, supposedly being complicit in what happened to Kurt Cobain, if you accept the official story there. I do not. And uh, she had a bit part in the movie Sid and Nancy, Right. Directed by Alex Cox, starring Gary Oldman, which chronicled Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen's decline and spiral into uh, heroin abuse and eventually death. That came out in 1986, and Courtney Love has a bit part in that film. There are stories that she was originally due to get the Chloe Webb part playing Nancy, but she wasn't experienced enough of an actress, so she got a bit part in the film. And then her dad is, of course, Hank Harrison, who was connected to the Grateful Dead when they were known as the Warlocks. He was a a road manager for that group, and the Grateful Dead have connections going into the CIA and Skull and Bones, the Bohemian Club, and any other organization you might care to mention. So we've got a, a loose link between all those scenes there, and people might say it's just coincidence or whatever, but if you accept that every one of these genres shows evidence of a hidden hand, if you delve... Uh, far enough beneath the surface gloss, then I think that connection speaks for itself. Damn it all to hell, Mr. Devlin. Are you telling me that the soundtrack of my life has been engineered? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) You know, another thing about Courtney Love that's ironic is what was that just outstandingly skilled band she was in, Hole, that was around for so long? Uh, It never ends. Uh, You could have gone into any bar in any town in America and found a more talented band, and yet Hole was on the airwaves. Right. Well, it's the same thing with hip hop, man. You know, I mean, that used to be uh, the scene that I looked up to and I was a part of as a DJ. And I've had to let all my heroes go from that scene. Well, not all of them, but uh, many of the key players. There are connections between the early days of hip hop and punk as well. So it seems that all these genres and all these scenes are ultimately connected if you look far enough. And again, people might say it's just happenstance or whatever, but the same organizations and the same names and the same trends just keep cropping up time and time again. And you have to be in a very heavy state of denial not to begrudgingly accept that there's something you need to know about here if you really want to get to the truth of a matter. You know, unfortunately, we do have to let go of all these heroes. I've done some public talks, which I've titled No More Heroes, and I've just gone into this whole dynamic of false heroes and role models that are served up to us and placed there into the culture to have an influential effect on people's value systems and mindsets and lifestyles. And there's never any shortage of examples. So the only answer is, if you don't want to be duped and mind-controlled, you've got to let go of all these heroes because we don't really know where they've come from. Yeah, in some cases we do. That's a huge issue because someone might be a lot easier to accept the false flag narrative, but you go after Jim Morrison and all of a sudden there's an, there's an issue. So this oh, hero worship thing, right, because music strikes at our hearts so strongly and you might get somebody who's really awake to a, one side of things, but as soon as you touch on their music, oh, 
God forbid, no, man, that they're going the other way. Their eyes are mm-hmm. very, very right. sewn shut and like, nope, 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 nope. Well, a couple things. That's very short-sighted. Let's go back to the to the work we did on the 60s uh, in the vein of Mr. McGowan. You know, they delivered the birth control pill, and then a band came up with a song that informed the whole hippie movement. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. If you don't think these things have power within the group mentality of a society, go think again. But even all the way up to the MTV age, you know, I remember I was living in a part of San Diego where cable had not yet come to town. So we would go to a friend's house who was closer in, who already had cable, everyone waiting to hear that infamous moment when the Buggles, and go look at the members of the Buggles, they go all the way back, and uh, and maybe Mr. Devlin can address that, but the Buggles inform us all as they open MTV for the first time that video killed the radio star, but the funny thing that people don't look is look at who was running that, look at how MTV, just look it up, but what you really should pay attention to is the obvious things. Here we are in the United States of America. MTV or music television is going to be this big thing. And believe me, I was there. The whole generation was waiting for it. Everyone wanted to know what David Bowie or any rock so-called hero was, was going to do next. And what actually happened was they launched it. And I would estimate that something like 90% of all the videos were British. As a matter of fact, a lot of them were Rod Stewart videos out of the gate. How can that be? We live in the United States of America where Hollywood is, and if you look at the first Van Halen video, it looks like a mentally challenged individual with a broken handycam filmed it. You can see things if you go back and take a careful look. I mean, what would you add, Mark? Well, not much really. Buggles was Trevor Horn, who's a British super producer. He's produced a whole load of acts, not least Frankie Goes to Hollywood. We were talking about the hype of the punk scene earlier and what Malcolm McLaren did to uh, really over-embellish that group. And we saw the same thing with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who are only really big for one year. They were absolutely massive in 1984, but hardly, you know, survived beyond that. And Trevor Horn was behind the hype of that act. So, yeah, he's going to be a key player. He owns Psalm Studios in London. I think that's where the Band-Aid single, Do They Know It's Christmas, was recorded. But, uh, yeah, that's Trevor Horn for you. And uh, just the fact that he's been so successful tells you that he's going to be connected and he's going to be doing the bidding of those that control the industry. Did they have that song written and recorded to be there for the launch of MTV? I mean, was that clever thinking ahead of time or was this pre-thought out? Well, I think we're told that it was just serendipity. Yeah, poppycock. And by the way, I didn't realize we were going to talk about the Buggles, but members of the bands played in other bands previous. I just can't recall what they are, but that's an easy lookup for anyone. Um, If you you want to accept that such a, a statement of a title of a song, Video Killed the Radio Star, I mean, that's intention got intention all over it but when you begin to look at how mtv came to us and where all the music was coming from it was coming out of the uk just like so much of music steered from the uk after all even if we go back to the 60s and we look at the supposed british invasion what you're looking at by their own statements is people who saw american music repackaged it and then brought it back around i I don't i I don't think there's any guys you kicked out the british in 1776 right no, I was going to make that point. When they when they say the British invasion, they're not kidding. That's a perfect name for it, isn't it? That's right. They were telling you right there what it was. In your face. Yeah, and it didn't right. stop the Beatles either. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we didn't even know to try at the time. Well, some people did, I guess. <laughs> some people weren't too sure about those long haircuts and you know, other things. But uh, yeah, it's it's a hell of a thing. You know, there there are channels that we watch like, God, why is that slipping my mind? 
Well, there's a couple of them. Mike Williams is really good at it. Mike Williams, yeah. Yeah, uh, Tina Foster's really good at it. Jim Fetzer's really good at it. Mike Williams really keeps trying to dig up more and more and more on it. Which he kind of does, yeah. He kind of does. He keeps adding more and more. But but at the base of what I'm saying is once you see a thing and you recognize it for a farce or engineered or a stage piece or whatever the hell you want to call it, how can you accept anything that comes after? And if you can go all the way back to the Beatles, that's the start of the change of the world. I don't think anyone out there can really argue that the Beatles didn't change most of the world. So Apple Music Corporation changed the world. And then later on, hint, 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 Apple Computer Corporation is going to change the world. These things are not mutually exclusive, but let's try to focus back on the punk rock movement because I think one of the big things, and we started to get into it, was I think it was paving the way for rap. And if we go to CBGB, here's an interesting band, Blondie. So Blondie comes around and initially she was one of the bands that I was influenced by because she was hardcore punk rock. Generation X or something, if I remember correctly. I don't know if I've got that right, but it was really truly punk. And she began to morph. And as Blondie morphed, she started getting closer to disco, closer to disco. And then she drops the, I don't even know how to what, what to call it, the song Rapture, which has rap right in the title. And she introduces Fast Five Freddy or whatever that guy's name is. And that is almost like the nod telling the world that punk rock has set the stage for the lowering of musicality and that rap is coming right behind. So as punk comes and goes, turns into new wave, and then later grunge emerges from the same roots, rap is slowly growing and gaining a foothold that whole time. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I've got some stuff on the connections between punk and rap music. Just a couple of little bits about Debbie Harry before that, which are of interest. Prior to her days with Blondie, she worked as a waitress in one of the original Playboy nightclubs, the Hugh Hefner empire, you know. And uh, contemporary to her at that time, working out of those uh, clubs, was Gloria Steinem touted as the mother of the feminist movement, but it turns out when you do some research, she was also a stated CIA asset by her own admission. So there's Debbie Harry working alongside Gloria Steinem. Uh, I've got a very interesting little snippet that was brought to me by this dude that was known as Nino210. So when I did a, a podcast a few years ago on the punk scene, and I've quoted this guy in my books, there was this researcher known as Nino210. No idea what his real name is, and he goes by something else now. But I just want to give a credit to him because he dropped a lot of this information into my lap. And he pointed out that there are some connections, believe it or not, between the punk scene and serial killers. And one of them involves Debbie Harry. So in an interview some years back, she claimed that she almost became a murder victim of Ted Bundy. She apparently accepted a lift from him in New York in the 1970s, and she narrowly escaped from his car when he started acting strangely, and she got the hell away from there. So isn't that an interesting story? (laughs) All the world's a stage, man. Yep, go. Well, Well, exactly. And more recently, in 2017, Debbie Harry in interview, revealed that she discovered she has Scottish ancestry, you don't say, on the part of her birth mother. So she was adopted and raised by Richard and Catherine Harry when she was three months old, but her birth name was Angela Trimble, and her mother's maiden name was Mackenzie. And the Mackenzies are one of the principal clans or bloodlines coming out of Scotland. Hmm, what else comes Mm. out of Scotland? Can't quite think. But anyway, uh, interesting connections there. involving Debbie Harry. And then, of course, you got the song Rapture, as you say, which name-checked Fab Five Freddy, who was actually one of the early presenters on MTV. Right. This stuff just keeps going round and round. Uh, and also Grandmaster Flash, 
there are three principal founding fathers of hip-hop culture that are always put up there on a pedestal. One of them is Grandmaster Flash, who is credited with having pioneered the art of turntablism, scratching and manipulating records on uh, turntables, you know. Then you've got Cool Herc, who was this guy from a Jamaican family who came over with uh, a big sound system and he established the original block parties coming out of the Bronx in New York. And so hip hop culture is said to have grown up out of that whole thing from 1973 onwards. And then you've got this guy, Africa Bambata, and he's been in the headlines just recently. Originally, he was credited with being the godfather of hip hop culture. So this was taking the music form and extrapolating it into a whole art form and a way of life involving things like graffiti and breakdancing and all these other aspects of hip hop culture. Well, in 2016, a couple of guys emerged saying that they had been a part of Bambata's Universal Zulu Nation movement, which appears to have been something of a sort of quasi-religious cult that he established in the 1970s, coming out of these street gangs, the Bronx River organization of the time and the Black Spades. And these guys alleged that Bambata sexually molested them when they were minors back in the late 70s and early 80s. So this hit certain headlines, although it never got into the mainstream. And yet, here we are towards the end of 2019, and Bambata is still walking around a free man, he's still performing shows, and no action has been taken against him in response to these allegations. Uh, a lot of that is down to the statute of limitations in New York, which prevented these guys from pressing any charges beyond uh, their 21st birthday, I think it was. But nevertheless, in light of the recent Me Too movement, and in light of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal and Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Bill Cosby and all of this, you would think that the media would love an opportunity to go after one of the principal figures of an entire art form and music movement and, you know, sling some muck at him. But Bambata is escaping all of that and uh, is largely being kept out of the headlines and is beyond scrutiny. So that has been a major question for me and a few other researchers in recent years as to how it is that one of these founding fathers of hip hop culture is escaping this sort of scrutiny. But you also get some connections between Malcolm McLaren. I said all this stuff goes back around in circles and Bambata. So in the early 80s, in the post-Sex Pistols years, McLaren moved back to New York and spent some time living there, and he's said to have struck up a friendship with Africa Bambata. And then McLaren started to dip his toe into the emerging world of electro-hip-hop. So he produced this record, uh, Buffalo Gels. Then he put out an album in 1983 called Duck Rock, and there was the single Double Dutch which uh, people might remember. And uh, he also was affiliated with this group called the World Famous Supreme Team. So this was all hip-hop meets a kind of punk aesthetic or a punk attitude. And then before you know it, in 1984, Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, Malcolm McLaren's old mate, has cropped up on a record with Africa Bambata as part of his group known as Time Zone, 1984, on a record called World Destruction. So we've got this crossover here between the early sort of seminal days of electro hip hop gaining a foothold and some of these players from the punk scene. And again, it's just another example of the overlap and the crossover between these different scenes that we never get any shortage of.
so well said. I'll just say, you know, you're showing that it's mutually exclusive, but I'll add one thing. You're asking how these people avoided uh, being in the media. Um, I think for my part, it's self-evident. You know, all the world is a stage and nothing goes on the stage without the say-so of the stage manager. So I think that's probably the simple answer. But go ahead, Jason. And by the way, I want to mention something about Aerosmith and all this when you're done. We're at the end of hour one here, so obviously we'll have to touch on this in hour two. But other genres of music seem to stem out of punk. New Wave, I would definitely say, is kind of like punk with keyboards and synthesizers, which of course came out in the late 70s and early 80s with everybody embracing them in a huge way. But you also have a band like Iron Maiden kind of starting off not really with a punk sound, but they had a very punk singer. And of course, they pioneered that whole dueling guitars and a big heavy metal sound that would be massive in the 1980s. So I'm kind of curious if you have anything to discuss in that realm. Well, for me personally, I'm I'm not so much focused on the the sound of these groups and you know the instruments used and, and such. I'm more into the background detail. Crow's probably more the man to talk about the actual music. We're going to have to wrap up here in a second, but a couple things. It's almost like Blondie's Rapture is the direct first public nod that rap is coming but i mean i don't know if you guys agree by the time run dmc shows up with aerosmith it's almost like an announcement rap is officially bigger than rock and roll now and i'll add another thing when we got into the 80s there was no lack of skilled guitarist with jason points out all the time but they're made fun of the reason they're made fun of is because the way they looked apparently we're told dude looks like a lady which is a bit ironic coming from steven tyler been a lot said about him lately um you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady was written about all these male musicians uh, becoming so androgynous they were prettier than your girlfriend, which was to belittle, in my view, was engineered to belittle the genre. That was purposely trying to kill the last strongholds of rock and roll to make way for another thing. So we're going to wrap up here, guys. We're going to come back an hour or two. And uh, just so you know, Mark, we have a lot more latitude to openly address any of the things we want to address an hour or two uh, because we're free of censorship over there. But I would like to tell everyone that Shoot the Moon is still streaming on Vimeo On Demand. Um, we will be making DVDs and Blu-rays after the film festivals are done with it. It has won at least three. I can never remember where it's three or four laurels Jason has received for that movie at this point, which is saying something because at first no one would touch it with a 10-foot pole. Also, there's a shop link on Crow777Radio.com. Uh, that's not about shopping and making us money. That's about getting a web address out into the world free of digital concerns. But anyhow, I hope you'll join us all for hour two. Mr. Devlin's got a lot to bring to the table, and there are so many things we just can't openly say. I mean, how many of you out there know that Jim Morrison's father was the guy who told the lie that started the Vietnam conflict? He was an admiral for crying out loud, almost like the son was starting his old conflict while the father, you know, you see where this goes. How many people out there understand that not only the pretenders, Joe Walsh, and the entirety of the band Devo were at the Kent State shooting? Not kidding you. Anyhow, join us all over at hour two, crow777radio.com, where free speech will win the day, and we're going to cover this stuff inside and out. Cheers. <laughs>